Radio. Back in 2015, reporter T. Christian Miller from ProPublica and Ken Armstrong from The Marshall Project published a powerful investigation on a serial rapist. The story explored how two communities and their police departments handled the victim's allegations of rape. The piece, called An Unbelievable Story of Rape, won a Pulitzer and several other prizes. They also published a book titled A False Report, A True Story of Rape in America. Now, more than four years later, the reporting is the basis of a new Netflix limited series called Unbelievable. The original reporting focuses on a Washington rape victim who goes by her middle name, Marie. Her story of stranger rape was dismissed by local police as a lie, despite evidence to the contrary. She was even charged with filing a false report, and her rape was never investigated. Years later, police in Colorado tracked down her rapist after he attacked five other women, finally putting him behind bars. It's a story of police success and police failure, and the trauma of a rape victim branded a liar. You know, if you think about what she went through, here was someone who was victimized twice. She was raped, and then she wasn't believed. In fact, she was even charged criminally with it. That's Ken Armstrong. Ken and T discussed their story at the 2016 IRE conference. On today's bonus episode, we'll highlight some of the best writing tips that came from that session and learn how the two reporters went from rivals to partners on this unbelievable story. I'm Kelly Kenoyer, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. first started chasing this story from the Colorado angle. His reporting focused on a team of investigators that did excellent police work on a serial rapist case. From that investigation, he found out about Marie, a victim of the same rapist who Washington police refused to believe. He decided to give her lawyer a call. And so I called up the, the lawyer for the victim and I started to talk to him and he said, I don't know why you're working on this exactly. There's another reporter who's all been on this for like six months. It's like, boom. Like one of those heart-stopping moments when you hear footsteps from somebody else. And I was like, well, who could that possibly be? Who else is working on this? And he goes, the Marshall Project. And it's like, boom, wow, okay, like another nonprofit organization that does investigative work. Great. And I was like, who, who, uh, you know who the reporter is? It's Ken Armstrong. Boom. Who I knew from like eight-time Pulitzer Prize nominee, you know. And I was like, oh, crap. So in the old days, my survival strategy might have been to have kicked in and said, uh, let's jam this in the paper right away. But I've been working for ProPublica for eight years, and our model is very collaborative with other news organizations, as is the Marshall Projects. And so I thought, maybe we can do this differently. Maybe we don't have to jam a story in the paper really quickly. Let's see if we can work collaboratively. After a lot of negotiation, the reporters realized they had approached the same story from different ends. Instead of competing, they agreed to work together. And so we saw um, the value of collaborating on that story, but it was a real shotgun marriage. I knew Ken professionally. Um, he knew me. We never worked together on a story. Uh, and, but almost immediately, as we began to work together, two different reporters um, on the same story, it was really a collaboration that was made in, in heaven. For Ken, the reporting started months before T came knocking. He had started with Marie's story. I want to talk about the importance of patience. Um, it took me seven months to get Marie to agree to be interviewed. And you can understand why. You know, if you think about what she went through, here was someone who was victimized twice. When people have been hurt, it's hard for them to talk immediately afterwards. When they've made a mistake that has caused somebody else to be hurt, it's hard for them to talk about it immediately afterwards. Give them time. 
Um, you know, that's so contrary to the way that we're wired as journalists. We think that things lose their impact with the passage of time. With narratives, that's not true. I mean, the event that we were writing about here, the principal event, occurred in 2008. We didn't lose any narrative power through the passage of time. And when Marie agreed to talk, she did so for the best reason imaginable. She knew that by sharing her story, she could help others. When Ken began writing Marie's side of the story, he decided to jump around in time to keep the readers guessing. Was her story actually true? And I'm trying to make the reader keep wondering what really happened in the very early hours of August 11th. What happened inside Marie's apartment? They're going to have to keep reading to get that answer. And the longer they go, the more the tension builds. And one reason I can jump around as much as I am on the Washington side is because the other half of the story, right, this is a dual track narrative. The other half of the story is not jumping around in time. It's chronological, what's going on in Colorado. And it is a chase with all kinds of forward momentum. The Colorado section is so propulsive that it lets me on the other side with the other thread kind of play around with time and build tension in a different way. The final structure of the story is a back and forth between the two writers, each leaving a bit of a cliffhanger as the story switches from one narrative arc to the other. When you're writing a long narrative, you need to plant hooks to pull the reader along. And the best and simplest hook is often a question that will be answered later. It can be something as simple as unresolved action. You could end a section with something like, she heard a knock at the door. You end a section with that, then you go to something else. Maybe you have some bit of explanation that you need to provide in the story. Provide it there, then come back to that knock at the door. Because the reader's going to want to know who's knocking and what's going to happen when she opens the door. Something as simple as that works. Keep questions out there that will pull the reader along. You've got to hook them and you've got to hold them. One thing this story doesn't have is a nut graph. For any non-reporters out there, a nut graph is a paragraph in an article, usually at the beginning, that explains the point of the story and spells everything out. Well, in a nutshell. And a nut graph can be death on a narrative. A nut graph tells the reader what to think. A nut graph gives the reader a takeaway right from the get-go. If you're writing a narrative, write a story. And if you succeed at the end, the reader will be able to write the nut graph for you. You gotta have faith. In the online presentation of the investigation, as the story jumps between the Washington and Colorado narratives, it also shifts from left to right on the webpage. Marie's story runs on the left side with illustrations. The police narrative runs on the right with photographs. That simple detail of page layout helps orient the reader in the story, and the intense writing propels the reader through as they wonder, what will happen next? The two narratives have different writing styles, too. While Ken's sections on Marie are more meditative, T's police side reads like a thriller. So we talked a lot about how we're going to do the writing, and my writing was going to be, I was going to have a voice that was like a detective novel. Very short, very clipped, short, simple sentences that kind of move this narrative along in a very quick way. 
and I was reading kind of magazine writing and, and looking at like, oh, the guy saw like, you know, the clock behind the dude's head and what he had on his desk. And as, as a newspaper reporter, like, that's not a detail. You don't take those atmospherics down at all. Like, you're just like, what do you say? Well, I hope I got that quote right. And you're not looking at like around and describe the scene as much. I really had to train myself to begin thinking from the, from the very get-go, look for those details. And so some of the things I really pay a lot of attention to are like pop culture references. Like throughout the story, I have Adidas shoes, Sony cameras, Under Armour gloves. Um, the reason I do that, because in a novel, that kind of quickly can become, seem dated. But in a news story, it's actually a claim to freshness. Ken says he has a different strategy for keeping readers engaged. Write in rules or principles that characters are expected to follow, and then let the reader notice when the characters break those rules. There are these rules that the people we're writing about should follow. What should teachers do? What should teachers not do? What should police officers do? What should they not do? If you're writing a narrative, it's very effective to embed those rules early in your story before you get to the action to provide the reader with that information so that as the action then unfolds, the reader can do the rest of the work for you. Instead of having the writer point out each step of the way, when the police detective did this, boy, he should not have done that. That was a mistake. Let the reader do that. Give them the information. And then as the action unfolds, the reader, each time one of those rules is violated, is going to experience this sense of building outrage or dread. It helps create emotion. It helps create tension. And with the narrative, those are good things. Great narrative writing is largely about trusting the audience to read between the lines. You don't have to step back and say, in thousands of court pages and records that we reviewed, blah, 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 ProPublica and the Marshall Project found, colon, rapes a problem in this country. <laughs> didn't have to do that, right? We knew that as a back, as a back setting. So the medicine part of the story, I mean, this was a story about how cops uh, did badly and well in a rape investigation and about false reporting uh, claims of rape. That's what the story is about, so we don't want to lose that. We want to have the characters talk about that themselves rather than me throwing it into your face. And then you break it down. There's a real rhythm uh, that moves the story along. It's that rhythm of, and it's like drum beats can be combined in different ways to make more and more complex rhythms. That's how simple sentences can be combined to make more and more interesting rhythms uh, to the, the story that you're reading. said you shouldn't be afraid to surprise the reader. For the last section of the story in Washington, Ken unexpectedly switched perspectives. We're at Washington, and finally, this is the big reveal. Now we're learning what happened inside Marie's apartment in those early morning hours. And the way we're doing it, we're surprising the reader because we are shifting perspective. We are describing this wrenching scene, not from Marie's perspective, but from the perspective of Mark O'Leary, the rapist. Telling this from his perspective leaves no doubt that this is what happened. It isn't Marie telling you. Marie, the woman who was accused of making this all up. It's Mark O'Leary, the rapist, who's telling you. Then, at the very end of this chapter, we have another surprise. We have the one and only piece of audio that we used in the entire story. And it's a one-minute piece of audio of Marie describing what happened. Here's a short clip of that audio. I got off the phone and went to sleep. 
And then opened my eyes and there was somebody in my house. Um, it's very, very scary. <laughs> he had a knife in his hand and was wearing a mask and told me to turn around in the bed and face the pillow. <laughs> You know, I, I've heard from so many people afterwards that when they played that bit of audio, it was the most emotional gut punch in the entire piece. Because when you are hearing Marie at that point, you are hearing her in her voice, telling her account, an account that wasn't believed. But now you know when you're hearing it that everything she is saying is true. later, T and Ken are both producers on the Netflix dramatization of their story. But in a competitive industry, there was a good chance this prize-worthy story may never have happened. My experience with collaborations is that uh, the, the, the key unavoidable uh, thing you have to have is trust in your partner. And trust is developed uh, through that kind of communication. So you can, you, you, you're talking constantly about how to do the story and what you're going to write about and Ken, where are you going to leave the story off? And, oh, and let's talk about that. You know, his thing happens in Washington. My thing's happening in Colorado. We're moving back to our common point. So that's just how it happened. I sat down. I wrote my sections. We were talking every day. He was talking every day. So at the end, we literally pasted together two 5,000 or whatever, 8,000-word uh, takes into one 15,000-word take, and that was it. If I could add one thing, T and I met each other through IRE. Um, and part of me thinks that ProPublica would have never reached out to us. They would have torpedoed us if we didn't have that relationship. When you're meeting people here in the hallways or you're meeting them down in the lobby, those relationships matter. Um, IRE builds a culture of partnership and, and how reporters can help one another instead of hurt one another. That's kind of, you know, part of the IRE. That's why we're all here, right? We're, we're, we're all learning from one another. The relationships matter, too. Um, I really wonder if, if you and I hadn't known each other, what would have happened here? Well, cut your throat. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find links to Ken and T's original story, An Unbelievable Story of Rape, and their book, A False Report, in our episode notes. And if you like our podcast, check out a new show from the Arizona Republic. It's called Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murdered journalist. Here's a clip to get you hooked. Don Bowles was a hard-hitting investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic in the 60s and 70s. But if the name rings a bell with you, it's likely because of one thing, the way he died. But there's more to the story of Don Bowles than his murder. And more than 40 years after his death, we discovered cassette tapes of his phone calls. In those tapes was a story that haunted him until the day he died. I'm reporter Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering. Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Our new podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com launches with two episodes on Tuesday, November 5th.
You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at IRE.org slash podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Kelly Knoyer. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.